Hey everyone, Asim here. Carbon Hack is back this year. The hackathon will take place from Monday, March the 18th to Monday, April the 8th, 2024. Carbon Hack 24 is all about redefining the way we measure software to reduce its environmental footprint. At the heart of this hackathon is Impact Framework, an open source tool that lets you compute and report the environmental impacts of software applications accurately. Here's the challenge. In small teams, participants will have the freedom to choose from a variety of prize categories. So how can you become part of Carbon Hack 24? It's as simple as signing up on our website at grnsft.org forward slash hack forward slash podcast. Join us for three weeks of exciting challenges where engineers, designers, and content creators will use Impact Framework to measure software's environmental footprint. We can't wait to see what innovations and solutions emerge from this incredible event. See you there. I think in an organizational perspective, Scope 3 is turning out to be quite an amazing lever to drive change. Because by calculating the Scope 3, they're also applying pressure to their suppliers and saying, reduce your Scope 3, reduce your emissions, reduce effectively your Scope 1 and 2 and your 3. Or I will go to another supplier. Hello, and welcome to Environment Variables, brought to you by the Green Software Foundation. In each episode, we discuss the latest news and events surrounding green software. On our show, you can expect candid conversations with top experts in their field who have a passion for how to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions of software. I'm your host, Chris Adams. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Green Software, where we bring you the latest news and updates from the world of sustainable software development. I'm your host, Chris Adams, and in this episode, we have interesting news about Amazon and AWS, a programming language with a lot of mojo, and some exciting events coming across from the world of green software, as well as some interesting news with web page test. Before we dive in, though, let me introduce my esteemed guest and colleague for this episode of This Week in Green Software, which we sometimes call Twigs. Today, we have Asim Hussein. Hi, Asim. Hiya. So my name is Asim Hussein. I am the executive director and chairperson of the Green Software Foundation. I'm also the director of green software at Intel. Cool. All right. And most recently, learning about throat singing to go along with your <laughs> mushroom collection. I'm also becoming quite musical. So I've actually bought, I've actually got two flutes. Since we've met, Chris, I've bought two flutes, a guitar and uh, wait, what else? Oh, there's another musical instrument. I can't quite remember. But anyway, yeah. That's three musical instruments more. My than voice, me. my voice. Yeah. That was it. I've been taking singing lessons. I knew there was a third. I knew there was a fourth. Yeah. That's pretty cool. My wife is a trained musician and she's been teaching me the spoons. So that's basically all I have got to go with. <laughs> My wife is also a classically trained musician. She makes it very hard to be someone who's learning music inside a house. Because, yeah, anyway, there's... A, wow, a, I did not know. Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah, both quite musical. Yeah, we've got our partners are quite musical. There you go. 
Okay. And if you are new to this podcast, my name is Chris Adams. I too am one of the directors of the Green Web Foundation, a small nonprofit working towards an entirely fossil-free internet by 2030. So before we dive into the rest of this show, it's worth sharing that all the links and all the discussion we do, we will share it in show notes with this. And the general format is to basically look at some stories in the news relating to green software and share a few reckons on them. And you're very welcome to come chime in with your comments uh, afterwards as well. Okay, Asim, should we start? Yeah, let's go for it. Okay, so story number one. Is AWS, Amazon Web Service, confirms Scope 3 GHG emissions data will be made freely available to customers in early 2024. This is a story from Computer Weekly. And as Amazon is one of, is basically the largest provider, this feels like a fairly big deal, Asim, especially when you bear in mind that this may bring AWS's customer carbon footprint tool up to kind of parity with some of the other providers like Google and Microsoft. Yeah, I remember when AWS first came out with their tool. Probably there's a lesson learned here for cloud providers. When you come out with carbon measurement tools, make sure it's got Scope 3 in it. Because almost all the news are like, great, but where's Scope 3? Because it's so essential and it's such a large figure for cloud providers. I've heard an argument for smaller cloud providers where they don't own, physically own the data centers with which they are providing services that an argument can be made that it's so much more challenging to obtain the scope three data there. But when you own your own data centers, the expectation is that you're going to be able to have to provide that that data because it's such a significant number. I, yeah. I'm so sorry, Asim. I realize we've just dived straight into a jargon without even <laughs> just telling anyone what scope one, two or three might actually be. So I'll just quickly, for those who are new to the subject or folks who have never heard of the GHG, the Greenhouse Gas Protocol, essentially this is a way, the kind of de facto standard for measuring the carbon footprint of any organization or any activity. And uh, you typically split it into three kind of buckets of emissions. And because we're nerds or developers and drink coffee, we can use hot beverages as the mechanism for understanding <laughs> the difference between scope one, two, and three. You can think of scope one, which is from combusting fossil fuel. That's a bit like turning on gas to heat up water so you can have a nice cup of coffee. All right. Scope two is like turning on an electric kettle. So someone is setting fire to something to heat up some water somewhere to generate electricity so that you can heat up a kettle. So it's all the emissions associated with electricity that you might purchase, for example. Now, scope three is a little bit like walking into a Starbucks or a third wave coffee shop and then buying a cup of coffee. So you're not involved in actually farming beans or burning anything, but there is definitely a supply chain associated so that you can have coffee. So these are the three kind of scopes. And typically, scope one and two are quite the common ones that organizations tend to report on. But for these, for lots and lots of organizations, scope three can make up 80% plus of the environmental impact. And this is why we've been talking about it as being quite a big deal. Because if you do not have 80% of your reported numbers they may look somewhat different to the other providers. And I, that's a really great, is the word analogy or metaphor? Yeah, analogy, I think. Analogy. It's... Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to use that as well. That's wonderful. And I also realized, as I was saying, that I think I may have given the impression in my previous statement that 
Amazon just made the casual choice not to include scope three. And I don't think that's that was the point. Scope three calculation is hard. It's extremely hard. It's extremely hard to get right. There's a lot of error bars. It's really not obvious a lot of the time what to choose, what values to choose, what to input. And so that's why perhaps Amazon isn't taken this long to come up with the scope three data because they've been spending a lot of time making sure they wanted to provide scope three data that they were comfortable with providing. I just want to state that it's quite complicated. Because as you can imagine, going into Starbucks and trying to figure out how much a coffee with all the components you can imagine that come up to delivering that coffee to Starbucks, the shipping, the person in the farm making it, growing it, all of that stuff is someone needs to calculate all of that stuff. And it's very, very hard. This is indeed true. And even when organizations are reporting scope three, there's sadly 15 separate subcategories beneath it, which makes it even more complicated a lot of the time. And there is another thing which makes it even harder is that when you're trying to record scope three, it's one of the parts of this protocol where there isn't the same concern Mm -hmm. about double counting in other places. Because initially when the GHG protocol was actually put forward, the idea was that you would use your own scope three figures as something that you wouldn't necessarily compare to another provider, but you could compare to your own performance over time as a way to track your glide path to something which might be avoiding climate apocalypse at an organizational level. However, this is one of the things that has actually made scope three quite difficult for people to understand because this double counting issue is prevalent in this kind of scope and not so much in some of the other parts. So yeah, that's one we can dive into. And what I'll do is I'll share a link to that picture because I've got a nice diagram for the coffee one I just shared with you. Yeah, Yeah. there they go. But also, I think you raise an interesting point with the whole idea of double counting because I want to dive into that just a little bit more. I think it's interesting. So for instance, it's quite easy with like scope one. If I have an oil drum in my front yard and I'm burning something in it, no one's double counting that. That's not in your yard. We know that's not in your yard. We know mm-hmm. it's in my yard. It's very easy. When I'm buying electricity because of the way that you have to trust the system works, the database is actually like allocating that kilowatt hour to me. It only goes to one other person. Whereas with supply chain, it's quite interesting because your scope one and two, if you're a manufacturer, your scope one and two will actually be another organization's scope three. Indeed. So I believe the theoretical idea is that if every company and individual in the world calculated the scope one and twos, that would all sum up to this wonderful total, which is equal to the total of carbon emissions in the world. And you're right, scope three is just just nice to have. But it, I think in, in an organizational perspective, scope three is turning out to be quite an amazing lever to drive change. Because by calculating the scope three, they're also applying pressure to their suppliers and saying, reduce your scope three, reduce your emissions, reduce effectively your scope one and two and your three, or I will go to another supplier. And it's providing that pressure, which I think is really, I don't know if that was intentional or an accident, but it, yeah, I can see the I can see this the, was the forces. One of, yeah. This was one of the, I think this was one of the principles initially, and there's right. some very explicit principles designed for the kind of GHG protocol. The other thing that's worth sharing that we might refer to a little bit later before we dive too deeply is that there is actually a whole process of redesigning how people measure this stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we can do is we can share a link to a kind of summary of some of the responses to the World Resources Institute saying, hey, we're thinking of updating 
how we measure carbon emissions because there are some problems with the current approach. What do you think? So there's some stuff there that we'll share to, but we'll share a link to, but we won't be able to dive too deeply into it because yeah. I seem I think the two of us are getting out of our yeah, depth pretty quickly. Getting out of depth, yeah. Um, okay. But anyway, one of the parts of this title that my mind zoomed in on, it says AWS confirms scope three GHG mission data will be made freely available mm-hmm. to early 2024. Why was the word freely added? It seems weird. A sentence could work without it. So the fact that freely is there implies that can you pay for it now? Or? The reason is that if you are a publicly traded company mm. and you need to do your own reporting, there's actually been a while where you, if you spend enough money with that with Amazon, under an NDA, you can get these numbers, all right? right. Yep. Now, the thing is, that basically means that only people who are spending above a certain figure ever get to have an idea about this. And it also means that if these figures aren't in the public domain, then it becomes very difficult to have a data-informed discussion about where we're moving with any of this stuff. And this is important when you have the largest provider, which has an organizational carbon footprint of 60, 70 million tons each year, which is, this is like a small European country level, basically. So this is one of the things that has been problematic. So hopefully this may be a reference to saying it becomes available for everyone so we can finally have some understanding around this but yeah. uh, as opposed to just only the people who want to do an NDA on that. Because there is a kind of prisoner's dilemma aspect mm-hmm. when you basically only get your own numbers so you can get your own reporting, but you make it difficult for anyone to have any kind of effective policy interventions on this at a kind of more wider and societal level. Yeah. Yeah, very brilliant. So basically my personal website is hosted on Amazon S3. So I mean, I was always a major customer of Amazon's prior to this. So now <laughs> I'm able, but I, even I didn't, even I didn't classify uh, as getting the data, but even now I'll be able to get it. Anybody can get it. Okay. Yeah. Next year, eventually. Yeah. So oh, next year, sorry, 2024. Yeah. Early 2024, yeah. basically just in time <gasps> for the law to make sure it's absolutely essential anyway. So you do feel like, all right, organizations have to report this in 2024. So this may, maybe there's some link between that and all these new laws landing, which have reporting deadlines in May 2024. Possibly. We'll see where that goes. Oh, yeah. It's weird, weird cause and effect here, isn't it? I wonder, yeah. A oh, law we'll, we'll, the, see. we'll see. It's good. It's good to actually see the progress. And this does make it easier for any responsible professional to start understanding some of the impact associated with their use of digital services. Wonderful. All right, next one, next story yes. up. Yep, yep, yep. This is another one continuing our kind of Amazon tip, which is Amazon's SUS scanner for cloud formation templates. This was shared by Charles Roberts, senior security consultant at Amazon. And from what I can tell, this is now an open source tool which mm-hmm. can basically scan your cloud formation code mm-hmm. to give you an idea of where you might make some improvements. And it's, this is largely referring to some of the kind of pillars, architected pillars and sustainability yeah. from AWS. And yeah. Asim, I think you folks might have done something like this in your old Microsoft days about having yeah. some re- recommendations and pointers for this, right? Yeah, maybe I'll just take a step back and talk a little bit about the well-architected kind of framework itself, which is Amazon's got one and Microsoft has one that's also called the well-architected framework. Oh. But I believe Amazon's came first. I used to... Th- think all that the well-architected framework was, because if you go to the website, you'll see well-architected framework. And they have, I think, four or five pillars, security, reliability, this and that and the other. And it's advice for how, if you want to build a reliable cloud application, this is how you should build a reliable cloud application. Now, for the longest time, I just assumed it was just advice on our website. 
But it turns out it's actually a scoring system. And so what Amazon cloud consultants do, and so does Azure ones, is when you work with a customer, it's a scorecard. You go through and you ask them questions about their infra, about their system. Based on their answers, it gives you a literal score and you get a number afterwards. And that number can indicate how much work you need to do to rectify. And so when they added the sustainability pillar, what they also did was they added a bunch of questions. And if you don't, if you answered no or however it was structured to those questions, you got a yes or no, you got a certain score. And so from my understand from this is cloud formation is there, is there, what do you call it now? Infrastructure as code? Is that what cloud, I mm. believe? Yeah, it's infrastructure as code. So it's textual description in configuration files for how your application is defined. And it effectively runs it against that those scores. And it yep. sees what's your number. And it basically gives you a sustainability score, which is really cool, as to say. Yeah, automatic sustainability score. Yeah, this is true. I think there are a number of tools that start do, start doing this, but to have something which is in part of the ecosystem, okay, it's better than not having this. So mm. yeah, if you code a little bit of Python or if you ever have to manage anything related to some infrastructure as code and you're using CloudFormation instead of Terraform or some other tool, then yeah, worth a look. Mm. All right. And I think from when I, I had an original chat with the with Charles, I don't believe Charles was the actual person who authored this, but he's the one who shared it. Currently. It's automatically scanning stuff and comparing it to AWS well-architected pillar rules, but you can create your own as well. So you can create custom rules for it, perhaps to your makeup or perhaps other people can come up with their own rules for what makes a good sustainable application, add it to that framework as well. So yeah, it can be extended. Wow. I didn't know that. Cool. Mm. All right. Next story coming up is Mojo, mm. possibly the biggest programming language advance in decades. This is a it's link cool. to fast.ai. Yeah. yeah. It's quite a headline. <laughs> quite a headline. Yeah. Mojo may be the biggest programming language advance in decades. Come on. Let's talk about it. Okay. I'll, I, I actually read through this and I, I'm actually pretty excited about this. And I shared this before because I do a bit of coding in Python as my kind of main working language and python is often maligned for being a slow language even if it is a relatively pleasant language to be using Mm -hmm. but the general kind of gist of this story is that it combines the ease of use of python and it's designed as a kind of superset of python so that you would actually have all the syntax and all the kind of ease of use and the familiarity of using python but you have a really smart compiler so normally like with kind of, you have different flavors of Python. So for example, there's like maybe C Python or PyPy or stuff like that. These take this and come up with some kind of much, much faster representation of that code. Mm. And there's limits to what you might have there. Now, Chris, what's the guy's second name? Who's behind this? Latner. Sorry. Thank you. Chris Chris Latner. Yeah. So LVM is known for creating a kind of where you might have things that kind of create assembly or stuff like that, it creates what's referred to as an intermediate representation. So this is like a piece of language which is easy to turn into really fast code for hardware. And one of the kind of innovations was that a project which he worked on was called MLIR, so a machine learning focused intermediate representation. This is particularly interesting because it means that you can have that same ease of use of taking something which is relatively easy to write and make something which is really easy to run fast on GPUs or TPUs. I forget what TPU stands for, but it's a Tensor transformer process. processor unit, perhaps. T- 
tensor processing unit. Thank you. Yeah, tensor. Yeah. So basically, really fast AI, essentially. Mm. And this essentially means that you get the speed of these really low-level languages with a lot of this. And typically, you could do bits of that. Like you might write something in Rust, which is like what all the core kids do, and yeah. then use some kind of bridge language. But this idea is that there's like a subset of just extra functions you might type. So rather than typing def, my function, blah, you just do fn, my function, which is somewhat rusty. Mm. And then your compiler knows that this part can be super duper fast. And they're promising hundreds or thousands of, hundreds or thousand fold speed Im improvement on this one, which is mind blowing in my view. My initial first thoughts were, I've been a user of Python for a long time now, on and off. But it's been maligned for a long time for being slow. And I think mm -hmm. that's unfair because you would never normally write the things that need high performance directly in Python. Like that's why Python is still used for machine learning. Mm. Because what you end up doing is you import NumPy or, or even TensorFlow or something like mm -hmm. that. And then you actually, your code is executed using those libraries. Those libraries are written in C and C+. Correct. So A, I think it was oft times maligned. And so I was like thinking to myself, is this really necessary? Because you can still get that performance improvements. Mm. But I was just reading it again. And I realized that there's a really important point here was that it's actually really hard to debug that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's the really, I, as soon as I like read that, I was like, oh, of course. And so now you can actually just debug Python code. It's not just going to make a call to some external thing, mysterious black box that mm -hmm. does something fast and you don't know what it's going to do. You can step through step by step. And I think that's very interesting. That's right. Because as a learning experience, that's really going to help people build performance systems. Yeah. I'm hoping this means that I don't need to learn how to try and <laughs> learn Rust or something, to be honest, because <laughs> oh, there's lots of things of which seem nice. But this basically is an alternative to having to learn yet another language. Because if it's going to take me 10 years before learning Rust, then I'm not going to be very far from retirement before I'm yeah. any good at coding in these new languages. So, I yeah. Never, that, I never thought about it from that perspective, but you're right that a lot of people are going to hate me for saying this. This could be a Rust killer. This could be like, if there's a lot of people who know Python already. And if this is going to give you effectively Rust level speeds, which it will, it will do because it's a system level, it compiles down to system level. That's very interesting. See, now you see where I shared it, see? Yeah, I got excited, you now, right? I got you now, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh. All right, but for folks who are fans of Rust, it is, the I think, the most popular, most loved programming language. This doesn't mean that you won't have a job. There's lots and lots of work for Rust, and I think Rust has actually been adopted in favor of C++ for a number of Microsoft projects now. Yeah, yeah, a lot and, to be Amazon. For. and Amazon as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's plenty of life in a rusty world, absolutely. And this isn't really out yet as well. We're not even sure if we're going to have this as open source yet, but it looks like it might be in all the previous projects like LLVM and so on were open source. So we can hold our fingers and hopefully assume we can stay relevant for maybe a few more years <laughs> before we are consigned to Forced the to like, uh... aging programmer trash pile. I don't okay. know. There's, there's still people paid to code in a COBOL, so I think we're I think we're all right. You're right. Okay, that's great. Let's hope that stays there and yeah. we don't get replaced by some form of machine learning LLM oh. in the future. No, all right, maybe. should we move on from that yeah. one? Because that feels like it's about to just oh, I can see <laughs> yawning open head of us. You mentioned AI. Let's close it down yeah. quickly and move to the yes. next. Yeah. Okay, so the next story is from an organization called Catchpoint. Mm. And in particular, there is a project called Web Page Test which is an open source a web performance tool specifically designed that's used by governments and lots of web performance specialists 
to basically analyze pages somewhat like how we just described the well-architected thing for Amazon Cloudworks. So this is interesting in my view because web page test is one of the most well-known uses like web performance tools. They've started incorporating a carbon measurements mm -hmm. inside this. And uh, there's a really nice quote from, I guess what I've referred to as the godfather of cloud or what, what would you call Adrian Cockcroft? Sustainability <laughs> is becoming a higher priority for organizations globally. Not only is our ethical responsibility, but there are new regulations that will require companies to monitor and manage their environmental reporting said Adrian Cockroft, tech advisor and sustainability advocate. Carbon control is making it easy to take the first step by measuring the carbon footprint of a website or web application, whilst also providing actionable recommendations on actions that could result in improvements. So that was like measured yeah, praise. I was pretty excited to see yeah. that actually, because this is this was like one of the former VPs of cloud and yeah. is very much someone who casts a significant shadow across the industry. So yeah, I saw that showing up in LinkedIn. I was like, Oh, sweet result. Very interesting. And I remember he also mentioned, because Adrian was a year ago, he, spoke, he gave a very, a really excellent talk, a very inspirational talk, as in, I don't mean inspirational as in go and do it, but as in opening people's minds to the idea of monitoring as an action for this. It really helped inform something of me. So I think I remember part of the post was the creator of Carbon Control saying that the idea for it came from meeting at that Monitorama conference like a year ago and how that idea kickstarted this whole thing, which, yeah, which makes me, I always say the most powerful thing you can have is an idea. So it just goes to show just having one, what one talk can lead to, yeah. The thing I might share with you is that success has many mothers. And uh, this is also using a library called oh, yes. co2.js, which includes some of these numbers, some of the kind of conversion practice. So if you want to have an idea for how much, what kind of resources a web page might be using, this is what it converts into carbon figures. So one thing, I've shared a link to the Monitorama talk because it's a really good talk. Mm -hmm. And this kind of process from monitoring tool to carbon tracking tool Dynatrace is another organization that does something like this. So there is a, it's a real kind of trend in my view, and it's really encouraging, I think. That, has Dynatrace added some sort of energy carbon tracking? I haven't seen that. Yes, last oh. week, Max uh, Schulzer from the SDIA, he referenced this, and I didn't know about it before there. I'll share a link into the show notes, but yeah, they have their own carbon impact oh. figures as well now. So, so much, There's so much stuff happening in the space. It's so amazing just, yeah. So who knows, maybe Datadog will do it. And let's hope they don't charge $65 million per year for the <laughs> privilege. Sorry, that's a nerdy joke about Datadog's recent investor reporting, realizing, and they mentioned that one of their providers was paying $65 million US dollars. 65 yeah, million for opposite. it looked like it was Coinbase. People weren't paying attention and suddenly the numbers went up. And when Coinbase realized... There was a $65 million hole in the reporting and they had to explain what had happened. And they said, yeah, someone realized that they weren't paying attention to it. So if you ever Sorry. feel bad about cloud spend, yes. So they literally, they, because of Coinbase's growth, they just hadn't factored in how much yep. the observability was adding to the whole thing and it just added up to 65 I think that was the idea. So this was like, wow. the, I think, the canonical example of sometimes cloud can lead to people not paying too much attention to expenditure. But... I've never done $65 million of spend before, and I'm not sure I will, but that's now my kind of benchmark to make me feel better about myself. If anything I have is not very efficient. That, that Datadog account manager is driving around in a new Ferrari, I reckon. You hope so, or maybe not, because 
that's gone now. So oh. they probably had a comfortable dis- had a discussion and said, oh, "Hey, yeah. folks, mm. are you sure you want to be spending sixty five million dollars a year with us on tracking mm. your logs and metrics?" So there was actually something ongoing there. So there was some proactive outreach to say, "Folks, I'm not sure if you mean to do this. Are you sure you want to be doing this?" Apparently. But just bringing it back to catch point, you know, because because you've been a major, it's, it's CO2JS, which is the Green Web Foundation's yes. project. I did put the Green Software Foundation's website through, and, and fingers crossed, and it and we scored pretty well. I think there's still room for improvement. I believe we did score green. But why don't you tell people what does it tell you? So the main thing that web page test does is it will look at your page and analyze it. And like we mentioned with the Well Architect Checker, it will basically tell you some things that you could improve based on what it's seen about your page. So if your page is a very large page and sending a bunch of JavaScript over the wire, which would result in a kind of poor experience for someone waiting for it to be loaded, it will say, maybe you shouldn't be sending such massive payloads over the wire because it's not going to be very much fun. And it also is going to have a impact on your end user's battery as well. Now, what it actually uses is inside the library that we maintain called CO2JS, there are a number of different models. And one of the models that is in use is called the Sustainable Web Design Model, which is based on some peer-reviewed literature, basically saying for this amount of usage, which is right now, it's basically the data center over the wire. It basically makes some assumptions about how much energy use happens on the device, in the servers, and in the networks. And this gives you some idea of what the actual emissions might actually be. So that's how it works. And you can link back to it and we can share a link specifically to see some of the assumptions for this. There's also a really nice post by one of the people who was actually advising on this and helping get this implemented, Fershad Irani. He's written about, okay, this is the things you need to make. These are the assumptions we've had to make here. And these are the alternatives we might use in future for this. So this is designed to be a first step that you could then start improving this. Because as we know, Asim, all models are wrong, yeah. but some models some can models be useful. useful. This is the post that Fershad wrote about basically asking the question, is network bandwidth the only metric we should be using? And what's yes. the difference between... Yeah, I thought it was a very interesting, yeah, very interesting thought because I think, I'm not, I'm not sure how CO2JS works, but I presume it just says JavaScript is equal to this. Uh, Pretty much. Kilogram- yeah, so he was thinking about what if you could split and you would give the same carbon weighting to a kilobyte of a JPEG image as you would give to a kilobyte of a video image, but maybe there's a difference. And I thought yes. that was very interesting. Yeah. So this was raised by Mike Gifford, who was... Oh, Mike? So he was a real kind of like sustainability and accessibility advocate based in Canada. Mm. He actually opened this issue in the CO2JS repository to talk about some of this stuff. So it's really worth looking and we'll share a link to that. But what we've done is we've shared a link called Is Data Transfer the Best Proxy for Website Carbon Emissions? Where he explains this and talks about where this is good and where this is bad. Because very much a lot of the time, the tools you use to understand an environmental impact of something, it'll often be impacted or influenced by what data you have available. Because not everything is instrumented to provide the kind of levels of number, levels of detail that you would like to have at the moment. But we're getting there. I think my response to him was like, like when it comes to models, as we just said before, like they have inputs and they have outputs and mm-hmm. you tweak the inputs to optimize the output. 
And so if the only input you have is bandwidth, that's the only thing you would tweak. If you separated out bandwidth for image and video and you mm -hmm. saw that video is so much higher than image, that would change the decisions that you would make, which I think is the interesting thing here. Yeah. Like, there's a balancing point between making something useful and ubiquitous and so everybody finds value out of it versus getting enough fine-grained information so the behavioral choices afterwards are the right or better people can make better choices yes this is actually a nice segue to some of the events we might be discussing actually oh, i assume brilliant. so should we look at some of these one then let's go for so it we, the first one is ottawa the green software foundation meetup on the 24th of may wonderful yes i'm so excited about this one it's Abhishek's talking. This is actually exciting because Abhishek has been quite involved well, in this. Isn't he? Unfortunately, on. he had to, for personal reasons, had to pull out <laughs> at, the, mm -hmm. at the last minute. So it's Henry Richardson is now giving a talk there, ah, which is just as exciting because cool. he's the, I don't know what his title is at what time. The lead researcher? Lord of Beards. <laughs> Lord of Beards. He does Emperor. have an impressive beard, yeah. <laughs> he does. Lord of Beards, Emperor of Electricity Carbon Emissions. That's what he is. But anyway, he'll be giving a talk. And I believe also, yeah, Tajinder Singh from GitHub will be giving a talk on sustainable DevOps. Oh, we never heard that one, have we yet? Sus oh, no, yeah. Yes, we have. Sus DevOps. We've heard that one before. No, we haven't. We've heard DevSus Ops. Not Sus DevOps. Is this like the people's this front is... of Judea? It does feel like it. <laughs> one of them will win out in the end. Oh, mm. speaking of things with ops at the end. Yeah. So Google and ThoughtWorks have a thing called Green Ops. That's their yeah. particular term that they use for this. And... On Thursday in Berlin, Google had an event talking about green tech. And Asim, do you remember your principles.green stuff? Yes. Yeah, I'll have to share a picture. I saw them citing your principles.green in their own internal stuff. Brilliant. It was pretty cool. I've got a really blurry photo. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to share it. But it, I could definitely tell you it was definitely in the kind of presentation that was shared with various people at it. Oh, brilliant. That yeah. actually, I just checked now, we haven't actually deployed it. We're on the verge of deploying a change to principles.green. So actually all those pages are now going to get forwarded oh. to the new learn.greensoftware.foundation, the new, I forgot, it suddenly can't, can't remember what we called it now, but our green software training. But it's the evolution of this page, but yeah. All right, here's the elegant segue I was going to be mentioning. Yes. So the SDIA has a hackathon on the 24th of May also in Berlin where this is actually some work with the German Environment Agency, the equivalent, the Umweltbundesamt, I think. Mm -hmm. They are actually hosting this event with the SDIA, a Green Software Foundation member, to do a hackathon about trying to understand the environmental impact of software. And they have actually a whole set of tools and a hack day specifically for improving the environmental impact of open source tools. So mm -hmm. there's a competition there. The mm -hmm. reason I was mentioning this is because this is actually where the initial work with Mozilla to start exposing some of these numbers initially took place. I met some folks wow. at Mozilla and yeah. they explained how they've been able to reverse engineer the energy usage figures for visiting a page. So you can actually get some of the numbers like the environmental footprint for JavaScript wow. versus videos or pictures and things like that. So maybe here's to actually extending it some more so we can make that more available to more people. So yeah, that's, that's the wonderful. 24th. And available the, for everyone. I've got to say, that's the wonderful things about hackathons. It's not even really what happens on it. It's not even necessarily who wins on the day, but it's the work that happens. It's the connections you make and happens afterwards. I did not know that that amazing work that you've done with Firefox. I don't think we've really talked in any great detail about 
at all. I think we definitely would love to maybe less deep dive on that or even deep dive on CO2JS one day. We should ask some of the folks at Mozilla because there's a yeah. bunch of other things they're doing and mm-hmm. there's a bunch of really cool stuff they've been doing with tele- telemetry that I think mm-hmm. could actually fit into this because yeah. I think there's a chance to create a kind of public data set specifically used on actual observed data rather than the, the model data that you see, right? Because they have data. Yeah, exactly. Collect, not in any nefarious way, but they must be collecting data. Anyone uh, who runs yeah. a browser, they're going to Google co- collect this, probably Edge have this as well. They've got a rough idea yeah. of, because yeah. every single organization will have to optimize this and try to reduce the kind of costs imposed well, on their users. If it's anything like how it was at Microsoft, like you'd actually ask the users of the canary version of mm-hmm. Edge and you actually you have a pop-up saying, do you want to give your data? And like mm-hmm. 0.01% people say yes, but that's enough to get like a significant amount of data. So I imagine the Firefox doing the same. Out of, I just want to just make sure everybody's clear. There's a hackathon in Berlin, 24th of May. There's a prize of 1,700 euros. euros. Yep. At Space Shack Berlin, which sounds amazing. Chris will be there. Max will be there. I presume yes. Chris will be there. <laughs> I am definitely going to be there. Some some of the yeah. Green Web Foundation, some of the SGIA folks will be there. And I suspect some other people will also be around as well. So there's a nice group of people now said doing stuff in our little town. And I really like it, actually. I'm very much enjoying it. Our little town of Berlin, yes. Compared to London, where I moved from. Is it? Still, yeah, I always I thought to, Berlin was huge. I was never really... Okay. The population is definitely lower, but it feels a bit more spacious. I really like Berlin. Anyway... Wonderful, right, so great stuff. Should we move to the next to one? Back to London, yeah. Oh, back to London. There we go. Always comes back to London. Yeah, so there's a London Green Software Foundation meetup happening the day after on the May 25th at 6 p.m. UK time. That is actually, I believe it's going to be the UBS offices in London, which have very cool offices, actually. And it's also a special anniversary special. It's actually the two-year anniversary of the birth of the Green Software Foundation. Yeah, I will actually be there myself there'll be networking drinks and pizzas will there be a cake we should definitely have a cake actually now that I realized yeah there will be a cake i don't know maybe there might be a cake if you've got 10 days all right you who knows you might even have cake pops easy for mm. people to eat great idea cake yeah. on a stick is the future my friend cake, cake on a stick there we go yes yeah. all right Okay, so I think that's it for our news roundup and list of upcoming events. This is the part of the show. We have a short show closing question to ask to our guests. This is what we see. We've seen a number of meetups happening recently. If you could travel anywhere without too much impact in the environment, where would you like to see a meetup and why? I'll put that one to you, Asim. Oh, that's a great question because, you know, I would actually really like to see meetups happening in places where it's typically been very hard for not for us but for people to discover other people with an interest in sustainability and find each other so i often find in especially in asia it's in the larger cities it's usually better we've had meetups in japan and some of the larger indian cities but i'd love to see oh if i could travel oh i probably wouldn't travel myself because Mm. there's a little bit too much impact but i'd love for other people to go and travel locally to their local asian gsf meetup Okay, cool. I'm going to be really boring here. I'm going to say something like Vienna because never been to Vienna. Sounds like a cool place. And what I've been told is that Vienna is one of the cities where if you had like electric scooters and things like that, you have dedicated places to put them rather than putting them 
in the middle of the pavement. So there are oh. car parking spaces dedicated for that. And right. there's even an app in Vienna. So if someone has parked it in the wrong place, you can take a photo, send it to it. And then the people who are allowed to operate this scheme, they have an SLA to maintain. So they have to get it moved within four or five hours. Otherwise, they get uh, fined. This feels like a really interesting use yeah. of public space. And I feel like, yeah, I quite like using some of these scooters. But I don't like how if you are in a wheelchair, they can get in the way. And it doesn't feel like yeah. it's the best yeah. and most equitable use of space. And this felt like a really nice a way to address some of those issues. That sounds lovely. Yeah. Yeah. So Vienna, that's what I would say. Mm. All right. Okay. That's all for this episode of the Week in Green Software. All the resources in this episode are in the show description below. And you can visit podcast.greensoftwarefoundation to listen to more episodes of our podcast. Finally, I think huge thank you. I really enjoyed chatting with you again. It seems nice to see you. So, yeah, take care of yourself, mate. Lovely seeing you. Toodaloo. Tomorrow, everyone. Bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Environment Variables on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do leave a rating and review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we'd love to have more listeners. To find out more about the Green Software Foundation, please visit greensoftware.foundation. That's greensoftware.foundation in any browser. Thanks again and see you in the next episode.